Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. And I'm Mark, her dad, a true crime professional, currently a traffic homicide detective in South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. So welcome back to part two of our coverage of the Freeway Phantom. Last... Which you have not identified yet. Yes. So that means that he's either still on the loose or we'll get to it at the end. You will see. All right. Last time we left off with the murder of the fourth victim, Nina Moshia Yates. We did. So she was the one that was abducted on the way to the store and her body was found just a few hours later off of Route 4. She was the 10-year-old, correct? Yes. Okay. So after this murder, the media pressure really began to amplify. The media began running story after story about the murders, demanding to know what police were doing to catch the killer. It was at this point that the serial killer was dubbed the Freeway Phantom. The media chose this name because they theorized that the killer was utilizing the I-295 Beltway in order to stalk his victims, dump their bodies, and escape easily. However, although it seemed obvious to everyone that this was the work of a serial killer, the authorities were still unsure that the four cases were definitively connected. At this point, they invite the FBI in to help them with the investigation. FBI Special Agent Barry Culvert was assigned to the case. He said, quote, the FBI became involved in this investigation primarily with forensics because the police department's laboratory had not grown to the extent that it is now. Luckily, the FBI had a far more extensive ability to process all of the evidence in the case, and the local police handed over all of their pertinent evidence, which was only the evidence taken from the victim's clothing and bodies. Through their own examination, the FBI was able to determine that all four victims had indeed been strangled, because remember, the local police had not been able to determine the cause of death for Darlenia Johnson because they left her body out there for so long. Right, yeah, because state of decomposition, right. So the FBI, I guess, had, you know, better technology. So they were able to confirm that she had been strangled. Okay. They also determined that African-American hairs were found in the underwear of three out of the four victims, which were not hairs from their own body or head. Right. Foreign items. From this, they were able to determine that the killer was, in fact, a black male. Wow. Okay. At this point, the police finally were able to prove that all four deaths were definitely connected and that Washington, D.C. did, in fact, have its first ever serial killer on the loose. There we go. On November 15, 1971, the freeway phantom struck again. 18-year-old Brenda Woodard. So this is our second Brenda. Okay. There was Brenda Crockett and now there's Brenda Woodard. Woodard, okay. So Brenda had dinner with one of her high school friends the previous day on November 14th. At around 11.30 p.m. that night, Brenda had boarded a city bus in order to make her way back home on Maryland Avenue. Six hours later, at approximately 5.30 a.m., Brenda's body was discovered by a police officer along an access ramp to Route 202 from the Washington-Baltimore Parkway. So this police officer was on patrol and happened to cross her body. Yeah, roll across her body, okay? She was found very close to the Prince George County Hospital. So that's interesting as well because the first two victims were found next to a different hospital. Right. I was going to say, yeah, they're behind a hospital on the embankment. 
Right. They were found near St. Catharines, and this body was found by Prince George County Hospital. Okay. An autopsy later revealed that Brenda had been raped and strangled like the previous victims. However, this time she had also been stabbed four times. Oh, okay. So he's escalating. Yeah. There were defensive wounds on her hands, proving she had fought her attacker. Also different this time, Brenda's body was found covered with her burgundy crushed velvet coat, which was odd because all of the other bodies were basically laid out for everyone to see. This was the first one where he covered her up. Okay. So it had been thrown over her and she was still wearing her shoes. Okay. The turtleneck she'd been wearing that evening was turned inside out and buttons were missing from both her coat and her skirt. Inside the coat pocket, investigators discovered a handwritten note. The note was a message for the police. This is what the note stated, quote, this is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me, if you can. And it was signed Freeway Phantom. And there you go. They labeled him and now he's basking in the glory. Yep. Yep. As a lot of serial killers do. So. Yeah. So you can tell he was definitely reading about himself. Absolutely. As you can imagine, this was immediately leaked to the press and was printed everywhere. When Brenda Crockett's sister, Bertha, found out that the note had been found, she said, quote, I was scared for me and every other little girl after that. But. Carol's twin sister, Carolyn, said, quote, I was scared for my life. If I went anywhere, most of the time, it was with my mother. Detective Jenkins, remember badass Detective Jenkins? Mm -hmm. She explained, quote, after that, everybody was phoning in suspects to the police departments. We were looking at priests, police officers, doctors, every male that you could think of ended up being a suspect at one time. In an attempt to narrow down their suspects, the task force began examining the only real piece of evidence they had, the note the killer had left behind. At first, investigators had believed that the killer had written the note. However, once they conducted a handwriting comparison, it became evident that it was actually written by Brenda Woodard herself. He probably forced her to do it. According to Detective Jenkins, the note was also interesting in another capacity. She explained, quote, the victim wrote the note, but what was intriguing was the fact that the writing showed no stress on her part. In that type of situation, there should have been shaking. Your hand would tremble at some point. But each line was written very evenly. Oh, okay. Because there was no signs of distress in Barbara's handwriting, detectives speculated that perhaps when she wrote the note, she was unaware of what was about to occur. This indicated to police that she most likely knew her killer. Oh, shit. Okay. The note was also helpful in that it revealed a possible motive behind the killings. FBI agent Barry Colbert explained, quote, tantamount. You don't use that word. Why would you have somebody spell that? I thought that note, it's being directed at someone in particular. He's saying that the reason I did this is because you made that judgment of me. This person was getting even with someone or something. Okay, that's interesting. Despite all of the leads and possible suspects presented to investigators, there were still no solid leads in the case and police were stumped as to who could have committed these heinous crimes. However, weirdly, after Brenda Woodard's murder and the note was found, the murders stopped altogether. Detectives surmised that maybe with all of the attention the case was now garnering, the killer had decided to lay low for some time. For 10 months, there were no further killings and no further leads. Until September 5th, 1972, 
when the freeway phantom finally comes out of hiding and strikes once again. This time, the victim is 17-year-old Diane Denise Williams. Once again, another uh, victim with the middle name yes. Denise. Diane's sister, Patricia, told People Magazine, quote, I idolized my sister because she was beautiful and she was intelligent. And I always thought that one day she would be a singer or an actress or a model. In 72, Diane was 17 and she was getting into boys. And James was Diane's first love relationship. So one night, my parents allowed her to go and visit him. And she just was told that she had to be home by 10. And so after that visit, James waited at the bus stop with Diane for the bus to come. And Diane got on that bus, but she wouldn't make it home. Wow. Diane's parents were concerned when she didn't arrive home. And the next morning, her body was found alongside I-295, just south of the district line by a trucker who had pulled over alongside of the road. Like the previous victims, Diane had been strangled and her shoes were not on her feet. But when she was discovered, they were found with her body. She had worn white tennis shoes and her name had been written across the back of one of the shoe's heels. Oddly, once an autopsy was conducted, there was no sign of sexual assault, but semen was found on her clothing. Detectives at first believed that the semen was actually her boyfriend's semen as they were together that evening. However, when they speak to James, he informs them that the pair did not engage in any sexual activity that previous evening. Mm. So at that point, investigators believe that it was, in fact, the killer's DNA. I mean, that's a huge piece of evidence. So it's just it's interesting how she wasn't raped like the other ones were. And it's interesting that he didn't keep her shoes. Right. Which maybe he didn't keep her shoes because he didn't successfully do what he wanted to do. Maybe. Like maybe that's only his trophy. That's his trophy if he actually completes the act. Right. Yeah. Maybe he didn't want to remember this one. Because it didn't go the way he wanted it to. Right. That's what I think. But something happened sexually that his semen's on, if it's his semen, that right. it's on her. So that's yeah. weird. You know, it's weird. It's weird, yeah. Now the FBI decides to scour all of the victim's clothing once again to see if any further evidence might be found. According to Detective Trainum, quote, the FBI did cross comparisons between the different victims and they made a major discovery. They identified a green fiber found on all of the bodies except for Johnson's because of her level of decomposition. Okay. And they felt this common green fiber probably came from the carpet of an automobile. I was going to say it's from the vehicle. Right. From a van, from the trunk, from something. Which that's kind of a big clue because, I mean, maybe in the 70s it was more common, but you don't really see green carpet very much. No, no. I mean, they had those crazy colors back then, like, you know, like the mustard and yeah remember the old uh, well i don't know you're you're kind of young but all the appliances used to come in like the toilets would come in like white green blue well hello do you remember in our house growing up my entire bathroom was blue it's not anymore but when we moved in the i'm not kidding when i say the entire bathroom was blue the tub was blue the tile was blue the toilet was blue our house was built in the seven in 70 so yeah 70s blue so I kind of liked it personally, but oh yeah, it was good looking, you know, it was a good looking bathroom, but I'm just saying, but back then, like there was like four or five, like standard colors that you could get and they matched. It was blue and like yellow and green. And so same thing with cars and carpet. Right. So now detectives began combing through records and looking at past child sexual predators to determine if any had any connections to the case. One ex-con in particular catches their eye. Robert Askins. 
Okay. He had a criminal history of rapes, abductions, and murders, and was an African-American male. Okay. However, what particularly sticks out to investigators are the abduction techniques he used with his previous victims. In one case in particular, he had instructed one of the girls he'd abducted to call the police and tell them that she was in Maryland when in fact she had not been, similar to what had occurred during the Brenda Crockett case. Right, that she was in Virginia. Right. In another past case, he also instructed his victim to write a note taunting the police, similar to what had occurred in the Brenda Woodard case. Hmm. Furthermore, they had interviewed several of Askin's associates who all told police that he frequently used the word tantamount within his everyday speech. <laughs> okay. That's a lot of signs right there. It is, but it seems too easy. Following all of these red flags, the police secure a search warrant for Askin's home. They were specifically in search of some sort of green carpet, which would match the green fibers found on the victim's clothing. However, they did not discover anything of this sort. They did discover several pairs of earrings, buttons from women's blouses, and a knife. But none of these items could be linked back to the victims of the freeway phantom. No shoes were found? No shoes were found. Damn, okay. They also took hair samples from Askin and were unable to match them to any of the hairs recovered from the victim's underwear. With no concrete evidence against Askins, the investigators were forced to move on to other suspects. However, Askins was convicted of kidnapping and raping two other D.C. women several years later and died in prison in 2010 at the age of 91. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So he eventually got arrested for other crimes. Yeah, but okay. Detective Jenkins explained to the Washington Post, quote, was he capable of doing this? God, yes but you've got to be able to prove these things. You got to have the evidence. At the end of the day, it's like, you may know in your heart of hearts, 100%, this is like, the, that's the subject. But if you can't prove it in court, you ain't got shit. Like that's, that's the dilemma or the, the fucking double-edged sword that we face as you know, investigators and stuff. Like I've had several cases where I'm like, I know the fucking person did it. You just can't fucking prove it. And you can't do anything about it. Right. You know, and you have to tell the family, I'm sorry, but you know, they don't like it. But what can you do? For the next two years, there was little movement in the case until the police received an unexpected tip. The tipster told police that Morris Warren, an inmate at Lorton Prison, would know the identity of the freeway phantom. The detectives immediately went down to Lorton Prison and interviewed Morris Warren. At first, he denied having any knowledge of the crime, but eventually he began talking. Detective Trainum explained what occurred, saying, quote, During the times of the freeway phantom murders, there was a series of kidnappings and rapes in which women were snatched off the streets by suspects who were driving a green Vega. Several of these people were arrested, and they were waiting indictment on these rapes, and Morris was one of them. Morris said that some of the members of the Green Vega gang were actually the ones who kidnapped and killed these girls. In order to prove his claims... Warren told investigators that he had intimate details of the murders that only someone involved would know. He explained to police that he knew details of the dump sites and also accurately described how each victim was killed. He told them that he would give them all of the information he had on the perpetrators if they could guarantee his release from prison and if he received a portion of the $10,000 reward which was being offered for information resulting in the freeway phantom's arrest. God damn it. All right. 
The investigators asked for permission to take Warren on two separate ride-alongs to test if he actually knew the information he was claiming to know. On the first ride-along, Warren offers to take the officers to the dump sites of two of the victims, Darlenia Johnson and Brenda Woodard. While Warren brought police to the right locations, there were still inconsistencies in his stories to police. According to Detective Trainum, quote, he would oftentimes mix up which victim was which, certain details about the crime scene, which began to lead some detectives to doubt his credibility. Okay. Warren told the police information which he could have gotten from media reports. He also seemed to know nothing of the note that the killer had left in Brenda Woodard's coat pocket. On the second ride along, the police had the radio playing in the car, and a news story comes on about the freeway phantom. Detective Trainum explained, quote, Warren had heard something in the car radio about how the Prince George's state's attorney was closing in on the freeway phantom based on a cooperator who was currently housed at the Lorton Penitentiary. And Warren just kind of freaked out. He figured that he's the only one cooperating and that people were going to realize it was him. So at this point, Morris Warren refused to keep cooperating. Detectives panicked and tried to convince Warren to keep helping them. That is until his story crumbled for good. Detectives discovered that the Green Vegas sedan, which was supposedly used to commit all these murders, was not actually manufactured until after the spring of 1972, a year after the majority of the murders had occurred. It's full of shit. Also, the FBI began investigating Morris Warren, and in the course of their investigation, they intercepted letters from the Green Vega gang members that they were ascending to one another. In these letters, Warren admitted that he had lied to police in an effort to get out of prison. Additionally, police tested the hair samples found in the victim's underwear against samples taken from the Green Vega gang members, and there were no matches. Right. He was just trying to use that story to get out of jail. Right. Yep. So after all their wasted time, the police realized that Morris Warren had been playing them, and there really was no connection between the Green Vega gang and the Freeway Phantom. Wow, that sucks. Eventually, the task force ran out of any viable leads and the case went cold. However, despite the case going cold, all of the members of the task force remained passionate about the case. As FBI agent Colvert put it, quote, you never lost interest in this case. What you had seen and what you had learned about the deaths of these girls was so upsetting. Oftentimes, I would try to make sense out of what this was. What had happened to that person to make him hate so much that the only way to make that hate go away is to watch some little girl die in front of him? That was very, very hard for me to live with. Let me, let me back up for a minute. You said that when they spoke to that inmate who was saying that he had information that talked about the Green Vega, you said two years had passed? Yes. Since the last killing and there was no other killings during that two years? Correct. And then they got this tip that led them to this knucklehead who was lying? Correct. Okay. Just like from an investigator's standpoint, when you have a serial killer or, you know, a, a series of killings and they stop, it's either one of several things. One person got arrested for something else and is now incarcerated and can't continue, has died or sick and in a hospital or something like that, or has moved and then usually, you know, goes to another area and it, and it starts up in another, another area. So I'm interested to see where this goes as far because that, you know that's a long that's a long time frame there for it to, to not happen and i'm sure they're probably going to happen again well and especially because if you remember the first few of the murders were all like within weeks of each other right 
to go from every few weeks to like years between is right. kind of crazy. Right. Which it means something like whether it's, you know, whether he's fearful of getting caught, he, like I said, he got arrested. He had some type of medical issue or something, you know, like there's always a reason why they end up stopping or there's a, you know, a delay in time from them repeating the incident or, you know, the murder. After 1972, the killings inexplicably stopped. However, the families of the victims still struggled with a lack of resolution in the case. Bertha, Brenda Crockett's sister, explained, quote, after my sister died, we just didn't feel safe anymore. My mom, it destroyed her. And she would just try to think of who would want to take her daughter, who would want to kill this angel. Evander, Carol's sister, spoke of her experience saying, quote, in the aspect of my sister's death, once a month, I would stop by the police station. I did it for years, just trying to find out what's going on, what's going to happen next. But the police would brush me off because nobody wanted to talk about it, which I never understood why. I don't know if they all gave up, but I feel as though 90% of them gave up. Sad. However, in 1987, 16 years after the murders began, Detective Jenkins was finally promoted to sergeant. And she was determined to do something about the case. Jenkins told People Magazine, quote, somebody's got to speak for the children. And that's what I felt my job was. And because I was a supervisor over seven homicide detectives, I was in a position to make sure that everything that could have been done would be done on this case. I just love her. I think it's so cool that she became a sergeant. That's impressive for someone who's a Black woman who came into the department during the time she did. Yeah, that's one thing my my very good friend who's retired now, he was he was a homicide detective for ooh, many, many years, a very good one. He was like, it, it was a calling to him. And he was like, you have to be the voice for those people. You know, they, they have no more voice, like, because they're dead, no one speaks for them. And that that's the responsibility of the homicide investigator. And, you know, and to provide naturally, you know, solve the crime and provide answers to the family. But you are the voice for that victim. And what happened to him? That's what drives the good ones that, that stay in homicide and that make it their like, you know, their life's work and stuff. That's what the drive is, is you want to be their voice because their voice was taken. So Sergeant Jenkins is one of the good ones. Yeah. She's definitely a rock star. So, you know, and there's a lot of them out there, you know, like she just happens to be on this case, but there's a lot of detectives. I work with a bunch of them that are just, they're fucking dedicated and, you know, they spend all their time at work and stuff. And it's like, it's, you know, it's impressive to see it's, you know, it's crazy. So Sergeant Jenkins reopened the investigation into the freeway phantom murders. But unfortunately, things didn't go according to plan. Because when she received all of the evidence logs in the case, she realized that all of the evidence had actually been destroyed. Wait, wait, what? Gone. Open, active homicide cases that have not been solved. The evidence has been destroyed. All of it. Okay. Yeah. Remember, I told you this is gonna. This is this is not a good one. <laughs> I I don't even like. I don't even know what to say. Like I, I don't have a response for that. Like, uh, are you gonna tell me why it was destroyed? Like, was it found out why? Or I mean, kind of. Okay. There was no longer any physical evidence to re-examine whatsoever in this case. So during the early seventies. It was common practice that all case files were held by the MPDC detectives who'd been assigned to the case. 
This meant that many of the files in the case were destroyed or lost as well, as detectives moved on to other positions or retired. Also, many of the original investigators had either retired or died, meaning new investigators couldn't even speak to them in order to get their recollections on the case. Yeah, so they would let the detective, it was common practice supposedly in their department, they would let the detectives themselves hold on to the case files. That's still done. Like I still have my files, but they're also, I mean, we have computers now, so they're in the computer as well, but, but I don't get like to keep them or take them home or, you know, unless I'm working on them, but like. Well, they did. Huh. All right. So not only is there zero physical evidence, half of the case files are missing. So even if they found, even if the guy came in and confessed, they have like no evidence to convict them. Correct. Oh my God. All right. Well, and also, you know, by this point that DNA had started to be a thing. Yeah. They could have run it through the database to see, right. you know, like yeah. if it matched anyone. Yeah. Nope. 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 All right. Okay. Wow. Sergeant Jenkins said, quote, I was incensed because in order for a police officer to destroy evidence, he has got to show that the case is not open, but it was apparently because the cases had been forgotten. A lot of people thought the cases were closed, so therefore they were destroyed. Oh, my God. So basically, they were just dumb and thought they were closed when they weren't and destroyed it. Without checking or without? Yeah. Unfucking real. All right. Upon discovering that she had no evidence to work with in the case, Sergeant Jenkins decided to call the FBI once again for assistance. Luckily, the FBI was able to assist her in reconstructing some of the missing case files. She explained, quote, the FBI had cabinets that said, do not destroy, hold for historical preservation. And I said, when the FBI can do this, why can't the D.C. police? Why couldn't they have done this? Yeah, I mean, all police departments are supposed to do that. Well, not the uh, good old Washington, D.C. one, apparently. <sighs> yeah, again, there was another time and another, you know, I mean, you have to take it at, at face value, you know, like the time, you know, we're talking 50 years ago, like. You're still idiots. Yeah, it's like, come on, man. You're you're in the business of investigating, solving crimes, retaining evidence. Like, you never throw it away. They certainly did. Fucking hell. All right. Fortunately, the FBI was able to provide her with the missing autopsy reports on each victim. Oh, goodness. Great. Okay. However, Sergeant Jenkins knew she would need more information in order to continue her investigation. So she decided to get in touch with as many of the initial detectives as she could. A lot of the detectives she spoke to had happened to keep their handwritten notes from throughout the investigation and were happy to hand them over to Sergeant Jenkins in hopes that the case would finally be solved. Right. The notes were extremely helpful as they contained detailed notes of the crime scenes and various interviews with witnesses. Thanks to badass Sergeant Jenkins, the case files were completely reconstructed due to her hard work and determination. Unfortunately, the physical evidence was unable to be reconstructed. Right, right. At least it had something. Yeah. But still, oh my God, that's crazy. Only thanks to her. Yeah, yeah. But through the reconstructed case files, the FBI was able to come up with a detailed profile of their suspect because at this point they were doing profiling. Right. They believed that the freeway phantom was a loner and a psychopath who hated women for some unknown but particular reason. Right. 
He was likely between the ages of 27 and 32 at the time of the murders, and he was likely employed. The FBI also believed that the killer knew or was familiar with some of the victims, and as a result, was easily able to gain their trust. So if you remember in the first episode how we discussed how some of the girls had similar names or, or the right. same names. Right. When I read this, that they think he was familiar with some of them. So maybe he was, I mean, I'm not saying maybe he just picked them out because of the names, but maybe. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it could be one of the, one of the links, like one of the, you know, yeah, I mean, it's possible. So that's also one of the reasons why they believe he was easily able to gain some of their trust. Right. Because he knew some of them. Well, and the fact the one with the, the handwritten note, as they said, you know, there was no stress in the writing or, you know, fear or whatever. So that tells you right there that that kind of corroborates what they're, you know, they're not always right, but they're pretty damn good, the FBI. So, <laughs> well, they also believed the killer to be of above average intelligence, although he most likely only possesses a high school level of education. Furthermore, he would know how to approach women but would not be able to, quote, maintain healthy relationships. Finally, they believed he either lived alone or with an older woman and that he was familiar with the neighborhoods where he had abducted his victims. Okay. So, yeah, I thought it was interesting that they said he either lived alone or with an older woman. Yeah, his grandma. Yeah, or his mom, maybe. His I don't mom, know. Yeah, but yeah. I feel like serial killers, like, they always have, like, some weird mom relationship going on. They, yeah, they got all kinds of issues going from childhood or whatever. They also studied the killer's dump sites and believe that he worked within a particular comfort zone. They believe this comfort zone to be in the neighborhood near Wheeler Road and Southern Avenue, where his first two victims were abducted. They believe he either lived or worked within that comfort zone. Okay. Or that area was particularly special to him for some other reason. Okay. However, despite all of this new information, Sergeant Jenkins retires in 1994, and there is still no arrest in this case. Wow. She was very upset with the outcome, saying, quote, I was disappointed that I couldn't make the arrest. But you know, every mystery case is like solving a puzzle. If you don't have all the pieces, you can't solve the puzzle. Absolutely. However, some good did come from this case as after it was discovered that the evidence in this case was accidentally destroyed, policy changes were made. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Detective Trainum explained, quote, unfortunately, a lot of information was lost that could have potentially helped solve the case. I mean, it's really an embarrassment to us. But after this, the city council got involved and actually strengthened our evidence retention laws. They mandated that evidence in unsolved homicide cases be kept for a minimum of 65 years. There you is go. That, is that pretty standard? Yeah, like for ours, ours is um, 99 years for like sex crimes and murders and 65 years is good. 99 years is like what we have. I mean, 99 years. sounds even better, you know? Yeah. So as of today... The case still is, is still open. I'm not done yet. Oh, oh, we're still going. I thought we were, she retired. I thought it was over. She, well, you'll see, you'll see. All right, go on, girl. To this day, the freeway phantom has never been caught. That's what I just damn said. <laughs> you made it seem like you was going to tell me a bunch of other stuff. The man who murdered six young girls may still be walking among us. And the families never got the closure that they deserved. Okay, so let me ask you this. 
after that very last killing, that was it. There has not been any more killings in the same manner with the same MO and all that stuff. So correct. Okay. So I'm going to say he's probably either, like I said, he's either, he died or he's got arrested for something and is doing life in prison or something. So I have like a weird idea about what happened. Okay. So remember how one of his last victims, the one that was covered with the The coat, yeah, the coat and the note. Right. I personally think that his first few victims, he may have like been acquainted with to some degree, like in terms of just around the neighborhood. Okay. But didn't know them personally in terms of hanging out with them a lot. Okay. But I think that that victim, he knew very well. Okay, the last one. And I think that once he killed her, he was like done. Like she was the... I think she was the, for whatever reason, she was kind of the object of his obsession. And I think once he kind of got that out of his system, he was done. He was building up to it and then he conquered his task and he was done. Right. Okay. It's definitely a plausible idea. I mean, but I'm going to say he was either killed or died or was convicted. Yeah. Because that's, that's generally what happens in my experience. Or, or he he moved to somewhere else and was doing it there and it was just never tied never to linked yeah yeah i mean well, it's possible you know what it's possible it's a definitely a possibility because it, you know it has happened there have been several that especially those interstate murders like you know those killers where they they picked an area because they happened to be driving a truck or whatever in a certain area so their killings were there then they ended up moving to another area or working another area and then they were linked and you know so we don't know unfortunately we don't know Well, and historically, there has been some serial killers who just stop killing. I mean, even like BTK. Right. Everyone assumed because, you know, he wasn't caught for so long. Everyone assumed that he, like you said, had either died or had been arrested or something. That's generally right. That's usually the train of thought. He never was. He just stopped. So. Right. Well, unfortunately, in these cases, the physical evidence has been fucking destroyed. So we're never they're never going to be able to to figure those six out. Unless a person comes forward and say, yeah, I fucking did it. And they can, you know, they can piece it all together. But without the physical evidence, the DNA evidence, whatever, and that it was destroyed, it's like, it's totally fucking absurd to me. But it makes me sick to my stomach. It's crazy. As Diane's sister, Patricia, who is now a police officer herself, said, quote, I expected the police to solve Diane's murder. But there have been too many things that have come out where law enforcement missed the point. They dropped the ball and they can't go back and recoup. The best chances of solving most cases is within the first 48 hours. And we're coming up on the first 48 years. And yes, it's just a travesty. Tommy Musgrove, a detective who later headed the DC Police Homicide Unit, told the Washington Post, quote, those black girls didn't mean anything to anybody. I'm talking about the police department. If those girls had been white, they would have put more manpower on it. There's no doubt about that. Oh, they would have they would have burned down forests to find out who the fuck did it. Like it's that's the truth of that time, that era, you know, so. Sergeant Jenkins said, quote, I just hope that these cases will be memorialized and we learn from the mistakes that were made and the public should always be aware of it because it could very well happen again. As of today, the case still remains open and the Prince George's County Police 
are still investigating. If anyone has any information on the Freeway Phantom murders, please call Prince George's County Crime Stoppers at 866-411-TIPS. The sad part is, is that, yes, they're still investigating it, but the fact that there's no fucking physical evidence, that's a shit case that is unfortunately probably never, ever going to be solved, ever. I hope yeah. I'm 100% wrong. I hope that, you know, somebody calls in and, but the errors that were made and just the, just the fact that they destroyed evidence, the evidence of an open case is absolutely fucking ridiculous. There's nothing else you could say about it. That's just what it is. Doesn't that just, it just made me so mad when I, yeah, when I got to that part of the case, I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. I mean, we don't wonder why people dislike police or don't have confidence in police. I mean, I get it. Like, I get it. It's, you know, his, you, you can, there's story after story after story of these type of cases, like, you know, like where evidence was lost or destroyed or wasn't obtained or ironically, just a couple of days ago, I spoke to my buddy of mine when we were discussing the one they wanted us to look into about the real did a suicide. Or, oh, um, Lynn. Lynn. I was speaking to my, to my buddy and he's like, at least our department all and which is what i said but i said i had to confirm it all death investigations crime scene goes and photos are taken and and i told them well in this case ironically they had like three or four polaroids and that's it he was astonished but again he confirmed like what i said was you're talking about the time that it happened what their policies and procedures were and you know you you kind of gotta go by what happened that time so it's Historically, over and over, you're going to see it again. I'm sure we're going to have other cases come up in the future where errors were made or just incompetence or, or whatever, or, you know, the cops actually trying to hide evidence or whatever, but, you know, it happens, unfortunately. So, unfortunately, the victim's families are the ones that suffer. They don't get the answers and there's no justice. So, yeah, it's the world we live in. So, we do have a question. We have a question. All right. So, this question is from Chrissy. Hello, Chrissy. Hi, Chrissy. Thanks for the question. So she asked, it's for you. Oh, all right. She asked, what is the difference between a traffic homicide detective and a regular homicide detective? Okay, so traffic homicide detectives, we investigate all vehicular deaths, whether they're just a simple accident where the person dies, or if it's like a, a DUI a manslaughter where a person's drunk, you know, a drunk driver crashes and kills somebody. And then, you know, it becomes a vehicular homicide or DUI manslaughter. And we also deal with hit and runs and trying to find out who did it. The, yeah. Who did, who did the hit and runs when, when they're fatal or, or serious bodily injury. We also assist regular homicide with their calls or with their cases when they have vehicles involved and stuff, because we're specially trained in, in vehicle evidence and, and like uh, skid marks, tire marks. And like, I'm a reconstructionist. So I reconstruct crashes and I, you know, I can determine speed and and you know different things of like the dynamics of the crash and stuff remember how we said he's really good at math yeah, it comes we, in handy yeah a lot of calculus and trigonometry and unfortunately uh, you know which scares a lot of people but it's actually not that bad but you do have to have <laughs> a love of numbers but as we're a regular homicide they're pretty much just fig trying to figure out you know the, they're like the whodunits so that's basically the difference i handle homicides or death investigations involving vehicles as where a regular homicide is all other deaths that don't involve a vehicle. So, but we do work together. We actually assist them, you know, with their cases when there's vehicles involved. So that's the difference. I thought that was a good question. It was. When you retire, what I really want you to do is I want you 
to get your private investigator license and then we can start a private investigation firm okay well we'll, we'll talk about that off the air yeah yeah <laughs> we'll see can't, can't make this shit up pis can't, can't make oh hey there you go yeah I like, it. I like it i like it we'll see we'll see well if you guys will please give us a review on yes. uh, whatever platform you're listening on we'd really really appreciate it and to those of you who have already done it, thank you so much. Absolutely. We definitely appreciate the attention. The fact that you all are dedicating time to us, it doesn't go unnoticed for sure. I, I don't have a lot of time and I enjoy doing this podcast and I, you know, we work a lot and we have our families and everything, but thank you very much for the interest and the support. We really certainly do appreciate it. So until next week, bye. Bye. me i'm being attacked by a cat hold on one second <laughs>